Hallelujah. All right. Nehemiah, we are in the third selection from this book. The title of the message this morning is, So They Began the Good Work. So they began the good work. God gives a vision into a faithful Jew in Persia in chapter 1. He takes it before the king after several months of prayer and fasting. The king says, whatever you want, I'm at your disposal, everything you need. Two, chapter 2, he goes to Jerusalem. He rides around, assesses the situation, does some reconnaissance, checking out everything. And then with the right time, he shares his vision with the elders, the leaders, the officials of Jerusalem. He tells them how bad things are. And then he says, let's stop this disgrace. And so they go, yes, we will arise and build. And so that's where we are. That's our review so they began the good work, and today's series title, or series text, I rather, is on the screen. If you would stand with me one more time, we're going to read one verse, just in honor of the presence of the Lord. Let's read this out loud together. Here we go. Then I replied to them, the God of heaven will what? Will make us prosper, and we his servants will arise and build. The God of heaven will make us prosper. ESV says he will cause us to succeed and we will start the rebuilding. Or the NLT says that. I think we're reading ESV. That's right. Bow your hearts with me, please. Gracious God, we turn our attention to you. Our circumstances sometimes overwhelm us. When we take a moment to come aside and to look up and to look out and to see you high and lifted up in worship, sitting on your throne high above all the earth. We worship you and give you that which is your due. God, it begins to change our perspective. And we, we speak today from a new place of encouragement. We speak today from a place of fresh hope. I thank you, Lord, for what you're doing in my own heart and life. Lord, to, to shore me up and to bring encouragement and strength. I confess before you, before these people, that I'm weak, but you are strong. Lord, I thank you today that you have chosen this moment to take the brokenness even in my own life as I preach from this place. Lord, to speak to the rubble and the brokenness in the lives of every individual person standing here today. Be in my words and in my thoughts. Let your presence fill my voice. I can't do it today without you. I acknowledge that. Apart from me, I'm nothing. Apart from you, Lord, I am nothing. God, I ask you to be in the hearing and the hearts of the people. Let your presence be there, Lord, to respond so that the two may become one and say the amen, that we'll declare the promises of God and say yes and the congregation will arise and say amen, so be it. We're careful to give you the praise because it's in that matchless name that we speak these words and we, we make this profession. It's in Jesus' name and all of God's people said. Amen. You may be seated this morning in the presence of the Lord. I clicked on the TV just to kind of wake up this morning. It was just a minute or two after 6 a.m. And I'm, I'm still just sort of not quite awake. The little, the bird started chirping on my alarm on my iPhone. And um, I'm just waking up and saying, God, thank you for this day. And I just hit the on button on the TV and it came on. And I heard this great elder statesman in the kingdom of God 
saying as I'm lying there just still asleep, almost not quite awake, you know. Dr. Charles Stanley says, Faith is the confident conviction that God will do what he said he would do. And my eyes popped open. I said, God, I believe you will do what you said you would do. And I sat up in the bed and took the next 10 or 15 minutes just listening to him, just kind of feeding my own spirit and being encouraged as he reminded the congregation who was preaching from James and he said, faith is the confident conviction that God will do what he said he would do. And so I'm meditating on this message and I'm thinking how I'm going to bring this today. And some of you walked in the room and you thought, man, what, what is going on? This is, I don't know if you would consider this to be a pile of rubble or not because it looks a little slightly organized. <laughs> if I had put it in here in the room the way I wanted to, there would be stones all over the place. But I was afraid of a trip hazard and the possibility of maybe a litigious person in our congregation or two. That's a $100 word for people who like to sue people, lawsuits. I have nobody in mind. That was really supposed to be a joke, so kind of give me a ha-ha. <laughs> there you go, right there. <laughs> um, and so I thought, you know what, I probably ought to just keep it right here pretty close. But if you can envision with me what the city of Jerusalem looked like, looked like, looked like, let me get the past tense in the right spot, what it looked like, there were stones that were all over the place because a wall that used to be big enough to protect the citizens of the city had been literally ransacked and the gates had been burned with fire and the stones had been kicked out of the wall. And I, I want you to consider with me a moment as Nehemiah, whose name means the comfort of Yahweh, he's filled with the vigor of a fresh vision. He's come to town. He's waited for the right moment to share his vision with the king. The king has responded by giving him letters of his authority, giving him literally all the resources that he could possibly ask for. He prayed for months. At the right time, the king asked him what was wrong with him. He poured out his heart, and the king said, What can I do to help? I mean, you can't beat that. Nehemiah's testimony is that the gracious hand of God was with him. How many of you need some of that in what you're attempting right now? Some of you are in school. Some of you are just you're trying to get something off the ground, a new business. I know there are two or three new businesses starting in the church right now. You've shared with me and asked me to pray for you and just some, some, some ideas. And, and, and I want to say with you as I begin this message this morning, there's one thing that I want to weave throughout this whole uh, three points that I want to bring to you today. This one thing. And, and, and if, if, you, if you don't carry anything else away in Thursday or Friday in the week when the week's just slammed you, I want you to be able to remember this one thing. You may not remember some of the finer details, but this one thing I want you to grasp. So I want you to say it with me. Here we go. There are good ideas and there are God ideas. If it doesn't look impossible, it's not a God idea. What we just sing in our worship? Nothing is impossible. Nothing is impossible. You hold my world in your hands. I don't know what your impossible looks like this morning. And there are a lot of ideas. There are creative people in this room. Several great entrepreneurs are a part of our congregation have come up with some concepts and really cool things in the way to be able to bless your family and you're blessing the kingdom of God because of the prophet, the prospering. The, the God of heaven will make us prosper and we will arise and build. 
And you're a builder. You, you are about the business of building a family, building a home, building a business. Maybe you're on the front end of preparation for building. You're in school or you're get, about to make the decision on which school you're going to go to. Wherever you are, God has a destiny, a plan for your life. Ideas are pervasive. They're all over the place. And a lot of people have a lot of great ideas, but they never do anything with them. They never take any action with them. I remember having a, uh, a, a roommate in college, dear friend of mine, who wanted to have a landscaping business. And he spent this massive amount of time drawing up the picture of the sign that his landscaping business was going to have on it. And I remember telling him, brother, that's a great idea. I mean, it's great that you've got that sign in vision. How about putting a business plan together? How about starting small, using what you have, and start where you are, and start building the steps to getting toward? I'll, I won't say his name. I love him dearly. But that, that dream never came to pass because it was what the book of Proverbs calls a fantasy. It was a good idea, but evidently it wasn't a God idea. Are you following me this morning? There are a lot of ideas out there. And if you don't take action, all they ever do is just, they're just ideas that are sort of floating around there in the creative ozone. Uh, but when you decide to get up and they began the good work is the title of the message today. They began. They didn't just, didn't, didn't just have a, a, a hope so mentality. But they realized that somewhere between where they are and where they wanted to be, there was this thing called work. There was this thing called Labor. So somebody said one time, and I don't remember where, where the quote came from, but the only place where success comes, uh, what was it, success comes before work, it does come before work in the dictionary. What's the quote? It just escaped me. All right, whatever it is. Anyhow, it's just gone. I'm going to leave everybody hanging. See that? I left my notes for a second. All right, let me pull back in. Let's shoot the rabbit. <laughs> come back in. Um, that'll bother me now. <laughs> The, oh, that's it. I said it and I didn't realize I had it. The only place that success comes before work is in the dictionary. Right. So you've you got to work at it. So thank you so much, Dorothy. Holy Ghost. Praise God. Give Dorothy a hand. So between where we are, where we want to be, we see a picture of a vision. And in order for that vision to come to pass, I have to do something. I have to take action. So they began the good work and the work looked impossible. Like any God idea, there are good ideas and there are God ideas, but if it doesn't look impossible, it's not a God idea. Okay, And so Nehemiah steps out to do this, and as we open chapter 3, he has a real good assessment of the condition of things in the city of Jerusalem. Now think with me, if you would, as you see these stones that are semi-arranged up here to look sort of like a pile of rubble. This is supposed to be the wall here. And really, let me say that probably these little bitty tiny stones would just fill in some cracks or holes. The, the, the stones of the wall of Jerusalem were probably out of something, at least this is probably the smallest one, in terms of the size of the rocks. Uh, this this was, a, was a two-man job as I brought it in here this week and put this stuff down here. And if you'd think about the fact that it has been a couple of generations, it was 70 years of the Babylonian captivity and then when the Persians took over and they actually gave an opportunity because of the way they governed, and I, I'm resisting the temptation to stop and give you a history lesson uh, on the Persian Empire, but the way they governed, they thought it best to be able to allow the faithful Jews who wanted to go back to Israel to re-inhabit the land, to repopulate the land. And so it has been 70 years of complete destruction of rubble, gates destroyed by fire, 
stones kicked out of the wall and now past that 70, it has been 90 in the process of restoration of getting back into the, the nation of Israel. 90 years have passed and through this process, God raised up Zerubbabel who started the temple and Ezra who restored right worship, completed the temple in the sense that he got the people focused back on primary worship of God and doing away with the idolatry. Twelve years after Ezra arrived, God sends Nehemiah, who is not going to rebuild the temple, but he's going to begin to rebuild culture, rebuild the walls of society, restore security because of the criminal element and the evil that is pervasive all over Jerusalem. There is no protection because the walls have been knocked down. The gates have been burned by fire. And everybody, every criminal element that you can imagine, they're enduring terrorism like we fear today in the 21st century, they're enduring it in 445 B.C. So we're talking almost 2,500 years ago. These same issues that we face today, they were dealing with then. God puts a burden on the heart of a man by the name of Nehemiah, and he returns to Jerusalem to rebuild the walls. He rides around the city and he looks at it and he sees literally what has been lying there. 70 plus 90 is 160 years. Now, some of these stones have been kicked out so long that they, they have moss growing on them. And you can still see the charred remains of where the fire, where the beams of the gates had touched the stones and the fire had scorched the rocks. All over the place, it's just like a, a field almost of like dead men's bones, if you can see it, except they're not bones, they're stones. And everywhere you look, it is the picture of devastation. Nehemiah shows them how horrible it is. He says, let's end this disgrace. And they, in chorus and unison, rise up and say, let us arise and build. But he has had to take inventory of his building materials because he's not, he doesn't have great big shiny trucks delivering fresh new stones from the quarry. They're not being driven in. He's going to have to use the broken, burned, messed up, jacked up lives of the people of Jerusalem. I'm talking to you folks. We're talking about the delta here where we have gotten so used to the way things are. We've gotten so comfortable in our status quo it was a little African-American preacher that said it's this way. The status quo is Latin for the mess we're in. <laughs> Come on, you can get so comfortable. You can be laid back on your mat and you can be crippled for so long in your area of hurt or your wound or your emotional disability or, or where you're physically handicapped or, or, or whatever your story is. You can get so used to it that it becomes familiar to you and it gets comfortable and you don't want to change it because it becomes who you are. You start to identify with all the mess and just, just the hovel and the junk. I had a, a day, days of succession of bad days this week. Everything was triggering it. It was a song on the radio, Ben Rector, and I was listening to a song, and I just, I'm driving down the road, and I'm bursting into tears, and I, I can't control this. I just, I mean, I, I go, okay, i got to breathe. I choose joy. And I think that in some way that God's letting me be a parable to show you that no matter what the brokenness is that is in your life, that God can take the burned stones of your life and He can get you put back into the wall of the city of Jerusalem, back in a place of fellowship with other brothers and sisters where you can find fulfillment. 1 Peter 2 says it this way. It says in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 5, that you are all living stones. 
and you're being built up a spiritual house, the temple of the Lord, a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices. So three things in 1 Peter 2.5, it tells us literally that individually you are stones. You know what? You're burned stones. They're people that have been kicked out of the wall because they got burned in a past church experience. A strong arm leader mistreated them. A fellow brother or sister defrauded them, hurt them in some kind of way, said things that they shouldn't have said, didn't do what they said they would do, didn't keep their promise. Any number of things that were done to you, for you, against you, or about you, or whatever, we've all been offended. Come on, somebody, everybody hear what I'm saying this morning. Everybody in the room has been offended. If you are breathing, you've been offended at some point in your life. Now, God help you if you're just one of these hypersensitive people that every time somebody looks at you the wrong way that you get offended. Let me tell you, I'm looking for those kind of folks every Sunday. I can't build with that. Now, if you are willing to come in here and let us love on you and help you through all of your insecurities and your rejection and, and love on you and just look at you and go, come on, they didn't mean that. This is just you. You're looking at everything in your life through a set of rejection glasses and you're looking to be offended. Come on, somebody knows what I'm talking about. You are useless in the kingdom of God if I look at you the wrong way one day and you get upset with me. Because the devil, you, 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 are, you are set to, to literally be sent to the showers in the ball game of life. Because, because you, 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 you can't endure, you can't withstand, you can't stand up in the face of all this stuff because you're always worried about in your head and worried about what you think everybody else is thinking about you. Look at your neighbor and say, we need to grow up. And some of us still living in a junior high mentality. And I'm not trying to be hard on you, but I'm trying to wake you up. You know what? Jesus looked at a guy one day who'd been laying beside the pool for 38 years, and he said, do you want to be well? The guy said, yeah, but you know, every time somebody, the, the angel comes and stirs the water, somebody else beats me into it. And Jesus said, if you want to be well, get up, take up your mat, and walk. Some of you this morning, you need to get what I call the beauty of discontent where you're finally so sick of the way things are, you can't be happy, you can't, be, you can't live in the status quo anymore. Latin for that's the way things are is no longer going to be your life description. But you decide, I, God, I'm not going to live this way any longer. Let me just tell you, after dawn passed, everybody was gone, Abby was headed on the road, a couple places before she moved to New York City. Drew was back in Dallas. All the food's in the freezer. I'm still eating food that came in. And I thank you. I'm grateful. And I'm there by myself, and I'm looking at this house. There was a time in the three years that Dawn, before she passed, was battling depression and paranoia. And at one point I was exasperated and angry and I just said, if I didn't do what I did around here, this house would fall down around our ankles. And I was frustrated because she was just immobilized. And some of you don't understand that because she come to church and put a smile on her face just faking it and just trying her best to just make it. Bless her little heart. <sighs> and she's gone and I'm wrestling all that down. And I'm looking around what needs to be done and God forbid that garage and some of you have been there long enough you've seen the garage and the attic which I've never let anybody see <laughs> and not all that's not her fault because let me tell you there's, there's a little bit of a thing in me that when I buy something new that I feel like if it's not going to work I better save the box 
don't raise your hand if you do that. And the only problem is, is that six weeks later, I didn't always go back up in the attic and throw the box away. And then six years becomes 16 years, becomes 25 years, 32 years of marriage, whatever. And then <laughs> if you can imagine what my attic looks like, it's all those boxes of every stereo system, every computer, every television. <laughs> I've already thrown a whole lot of that out. But I'm going to tell you what I had to do. I sat down when everybody was gone, and I made myself watch a marathon of hoarders. <laughs> I did. I did. Now, I've all, we've always kept the common area very clean and tidy, so when people visited. But, I, I mean, you know, there was just places that they was shut off. Now, now, nobody, you don't have to raise your hand. Everybody, probably you've got some stuff just like I'm talking about this morning. And I looked at my garage. My Aunt Lucille had passed in 09, and I got a bunch of her stuff that I just couldn't throw away. And I honestly didn't want to face it. I didn't want to have to go through it and deal with it. And I just was grieving her. And then Mom died in 2012, and I got some of her stuff, and I didn't want to throw it away. And then all my boxes of stuff that I'd bought were off out there because you couldn't put any more in the attic. <laughs> I am being so open with y'all. Is that okay? I'm trying to be transparent. And so I made myself watch a marathon session of hoarders, and I just sat there and I thought, my God, how do people live like that? And I, I cried tears. I said, God, if you don't help me, I'm going to be that in five years. I'm not laughing. Because I would look at it, I would look at that garage and I would be overwhelmed. I go, I don't even know where to start. I don't even know where to start. I, I probably shouldn't tell this, I don't want to blow anybody's minds, but when my Uncle Dewey died, they went through the house and found $150,000 in cash hidden all over the house. They were business people. They had a restaurant in Mark Tree and one in Truman. And he was saving it for his baby doll for Aunt Lucille. And so when I sold the house, y'all, it took me weeks and weeks and weeks to prepare because I'm, I'm opening every book. Y'all, I found money that Aunt Lucille and Mom and Dad didn't find when Uncle Dewey had died 30 years later. I mean, 30 years before. And so I'm, I feel like I can't throw anything away. I mean, you know what I'm talking about? My kids have thrown stuff in the garage. There were bins in the garage that had stuff and thank goodness I didn't because this week I found some really valuable stuff that my kids had thrown out and I don't know what they were thinking they were just cleaning out and it got set outside their door and then the door went to the garage and the garage came under the pile and there was a time when I was looking at all this stuff and all this rubble and I'm trying to give you a picture here the, the beauty of discontent I got aggravated and I said I can't live this way I can't, I can't just keep stuffing down my grief from important people in my life that have died <clears throat> who've been very dear to me, and I'm going to have to face it. I'm going to have to deal with it. I'm going to have to let God heal the emotional hurt and the wound in my life. And sometimes it was all I could do. I'd go out there and pick up a couple pieces of stuff, and I'd just move it over. I would just go, oh, God, i got to sit down. I, I was just exhausted. It would just wear me out. Does anybody know what I'm talking about? You, you, you look at your problems and you're just overwhelmed. And you go, God, this is impossible. I don't know how to deal with this. And so I made a commitment. I said, God, I promise you that I'm not going to let a day go by that I'm not going to at least empty one bag of trash and stuff that I'm going to throw out out of that garage. And man, that first day I got a bag 
And I didn't realize it before I noted it. I had picked up three bags and put them on the street. And I've been putting so many bags out to the street here for a while. It's, people are going, man, what is he doing? Is he moving out? To the, did a whole Chinese family move out or something? What happened here? <laughs> I didn't mean anything by that. I just, it came out before I said it. You know what I mean? There's a whole bunch, a lot of stuff in there. And so I, a little at a time, just started to see some progress. And I didn't quit. And I kept on. Just taking a bite out of the elephant. A little bit more one day at a time. And what I want you to see is what's indicative of all these stones here is that God intends for us to take the burned out, content, moss growing, happy with the status quo, lives of some people that have been kicked out of the wall. They've been hurt in church. Or maybe they've never been in church and they've just been burned by sin. And we start to bring them together and we start to fill in the gaps. Now, if you can picture me with some mortar here filling in those holes and before you know it, I, I, I start to deal with these things at a little at a time and I start to see progress and there are a few stones all of a sudden start finding their exact right place. And the beautiful thing about this is, is that God never builds with bricks because bricks are man-made. They all look the same. It's all about conformity. Same color, same size. Marching in lockstep together, say the same thing, do the same thing, vote the same way, drive the same car hang out with the same kind of people. Thank you. But the kingdom of God is about building with stones that are all shaped differently. Every one of them is unique and sometimes God will put you right up beside somebody that's got a real sharp edge that kind of rubs you the wrong way. Don't look at me with that tone of voice. You know exactly what I'm talking about. You're probably sitting beside, probably married to him this morning. Some of you got up and got rubbed the wrong way on the way to church this morning. Didn't even know if you were going to make it to the house of the Lord in one piece here today. Don't look at me that way. I know exactly. I used to have those kind of blow-ups and situations. It's just life. Just doing life. And, and God wants us to recognize that the broken lives of the people of the Delta are what this whole thing are about. This rubble around the city of Jerusalem, we're to be building, reaching out, making an attempt to reclaim broken, burnt stones. People who love God, but just have had a bad experience with God's people. People who really probably love to worship Jesus, but the whole church thing, they got burnt out. Come on, how many of you know what I'm talking about this morning? And so we got to take inventory of our materials. we got to realize that you may be standing in line at Kroger, or you may be on the golf course, or you may be in the duck blind, or maybe talking over the little short wall of the cubicle at work. You may be talking to a burnt stone living next door to you. Maybe you're in the house with a burnt stone. Maybe your spouse has been hurt or wounded, or maybe they're trapped in an addictive pattern of behavior and they've been burnt by sin, or maybe they've been hurt in church and they're out of the wall. They've been kicked out of the wall of Jerusalem. Are you following my metaphor here? Are you seeing where I'm going with this? The beauty of the discontent is that we wake up one day and we say, you know what, I'm not going to live like this anymore. Number two, we've got some job site issues. I want you to see this. I've got to move quickly. Nehemiah 3, the first thing they start to do is Eliashib the high priest and the other priest started to rebuild at the sheep gate. Everybody say the sheep gate. Now, wall of the city has 12 gates. I'm confident that this was a concerted effort 
a massive delegated authority system of operation where people are building all around the wall. It's an amazing story. It only takes 52 days to build once you ever get things started. You know, if you can ever get up and quit being overwhelmed at what's got you defeated, it's amazing how quickly when you start to take action, the Holy Spirit will move in your life and come on the scene and help you do. You remember last week's one thing? If we understand the why and wait for the when, God will take care of the how. Well, you know what? If you'll just start to do, God will show up and help you with the how. And there are a lot of good ideas, but good ideas aren't God ideas. And if they don't look impossible, then it's not a God idea. And this one looked impossible because Nehemiah is looking at the burned stones, the rubble, the mess that they're having to deal with around Jerusalem. I don't necessarily think that they went in the order of this, but this was the order of how it was written about in Nehemiah's memoirs. And I think there's some priority here that's to be shown. The first gate that they talked about, the sheep gate, they dedicated it, set up its doors, building the wall as far as the Tower of the Hundred, which they dedicated in the Tower of Hananel. And so we see the sheep gate is the first one that gets a list. And I believe that the sheep gate is an important thing because Israel was a shepherding culture. Sheep herd, you see the word shepherd. And the word shepherd, which is the title of the one who's in charge of taking care of the sheep, is the picture of what he does. He herds sheep. A shepherd herds sheep. They were hated by the Egyptians and given a separate piece of land and lived for four generations, over 400 years in slavery because the Bible says the Egyptians couldn't stand. They hated shepherds. Israel is a shepherding culture. It had begun in their father, one of the great patriarchs, because the 12 tribes of Israel had begun uh, as the 12 sons of Israel, the 12 sons of Jacob, and Jacob was a shepherd. He herded sheep. And so the culture is based on sheep. And so what are sheep today? Uh, Obviously, when we talk about this as the church, I'm looking at the sheep of God. They're the people of God. I want you to hear this on several levels. I want you to hear it personally in your own individual life. I want you to hear it even in the emotional areas of being broken and God rebuilding the walls of your own emotional security around you as you put your trust in Christ. I want you to hear this in your dreams and your visions as for your home, your family, your spouse, your marriage, your job, your career. Maybe some of you have an entrepreneurial spirit. You want to get a business started. So I want you to hear this on several different levels. The obvious one to all of us as we're collectively gathered here this morning as an individual stone, as together the priest, the the house of the Lord, the temple of God, and together the priesthood. That's what the 1 Peter 2.5 says we all are. So we hear it on that level. So the sheep are the people of God. So if we're going to touch the city, if we're going to rebuild and we're going to affect the delta, if we're going to see security brought to the delta and justice and equality and the blessing and the prosperity of God, then we must first begin with the sheep gate. The priority of the sheep gate is I've got to take care of what is mine right now first. And I don't want to offend you this morning, but there's a little bit of that in the current president. He basically says there's no way we can take care of the world if we don't take care of the home base first. Now, there are extremists that make that into an isolationism, and I'm not here preaching against, I'm not pro-Trump against Trump or anything, but what he's saying is, is some of this very same spirit here, if we're going to do anything, we've got to take care of what we have already. That's your family, that's your spouse, your marriage, the one you're in at this point anyway. Okay, the sheep gate. Now look with me, let's read on. Next verse. 
Jericho town showed up to help them, verse 3. What's next? Number 3. The fish gate. Everybody say the fish gate. fish gate was built by the sons of Hassanah. They laid the beams, set up its doors, installed its bolts and bars. Everybody say the fish gate. What's the point? You need to take care of your sheep before you go fishing for something that you don't have. Take care of what you already do have right now. That's your current job, your current car, your current house. You want to go fishing for a new one? Great. Take care of the one you got. Be faithful in the small things. How many of you know God pays attention when you faithfully execute and do the little things? He says, then I'm going to make you ruler over much. Don't shout me down. Now I'm already preaching real good. Be faithful. Look at your neighbor and say, be faithful. Now, this, this is the critical element of what we are called to do and walk in here in terms of the presence of the Lord in our lives and the vision that He has for us. We are to recognize the priority of what we have, our livelihood, our primary relationships, our jobs, our careers. Take care of what's primary before you go fishing for more and then be faithful in the small things. Now, the next thing says right here, read that last line. Yeah, that's it. That's, read that with me, everybody. They laid the beams, set up its doors, and installed its bolts and bars. This happens over and over and over at every gate, at every tower. You read through Nehemiah chapter 3, you see this phrase recurring over and over. And they came to the horse gate, and they laid the beams, and they set up its doors, and they installed its bolts and bars. It's very repetitious. So I did not dare take the time to read to you 30-something, almost 40 verses, because it's very, very meticulously ordered about all the different stuff that they're building and rebuilding and putting back together in the city of Jerusalem. But what I want you to see is what's next. This appears in this chapter as well. Nehemiah chapter 3 verse 10. Next, Jediah son of Harumoth, however they say that is. I look at that name and I think of the Oompa Loompas in the chocolate factory. What was his name? The little guy, Charlie, what was it? Huh? Who, Willy Wonka. Yeah, I, and I think of those little white suits and those little powder faces and the Oompa Loompas when I see that name. Jediah, son of an Oompa Loompa, repaired the wall. <laughs> read, read the emboldened letters. What? What did it say? He repaired the wall what? Say it. Across from his own house. Wow. This will preach right here. Bottom line. Across from his own house. Now look, above the horse gate, the priests repaired the wall. Each one repaired the section immediately what? Read it. Across from his own house. Do you know what? Too many times we get so worked up about stuff we can't affect. And we get all offended and just all kinds of righteous indignation and anger and just frustrated and we got somebody ought to do something about it and your own house has just fallen down around your ankles. Everybody say, begin in your own house. This is what God has called us to do if we will obey His Word, if we will take steps of action, if we will recognize that this thing is a God idea and it looks impossible. See, sometimes folk are so overwhelmed about what's at home, they end up putting all their energy because they feel like they got to do something. They go exert all their energy out there for somebody else. And it's, so, it's such a shame. I didn't say this in the first service, but I really feel the unction of this here. It's such a shame when you're in a service culture or you own a business or you're serving people and you put your best smile on and you put your best 
you know, put up with attitude on and because people are just people and you're doing your best to be able to please the customer and deliver a good product and by the end of the day you're so burnt out and you don't have any more of your smiling face and your put up with attitude and you get home and they get the leftovers. God forgive us. It's wrong. It's wrong when we pour out the best of our lives out there and we get home and we don't have any left for our wives or for our children. Don't shout me down. We need to have some left over. Don't put so much into your job and your career and your business and everything else that you're building outside of your home and family that you gain and win the whole world, but you lose not only your own soul, but you lose your own house because you didn't have time to be kind, because you're on edge, because you're under pressure. Deal with the excuses. Stop being overwhelmed. Get up and take it in one trash bag at a time. Start to deal with it in that relationship. I don't care if it's just a little bitty tiny baby step. You start to take some little baby steps, God will rush to you in overwhelming a wind. You may feel like your boat's tossing on the sea, but just cry out to Jesus and He'll come get in the boat with you. Somebody say amen. So this morning as we look, my last point, I'm a little bit, let me finish it right here. Ezra the scribe. I want you to see that what you're dealing with right now is not just some random event that has taken place. But God has already set up circumstances before you were born. Generations past, around you with people that are in your networks. Before God called Nehemiah, 12 years before that, he called Ezra. And I want you to hear Ezra's testimony because Ezra and Nehemiah are a tag team. This Ezra was a scribe who was well-versed in the law of Moses, which the Lord, the God of Israel, had given to the people of Israel. He came to Jerusalem from Babylon, and the king gave him everything he asked for. Isn't that something? Because God did the same thing for Nehemiah with a different king. Ezra got everything he asked for from a Babylonian king, and Nehemiah got everything he asked for from a Persian king. And ain't it something that God brings these two guys together who have similar testimonies? It's amazing how the Lord will always eventually put you around somebody whose circumstances are enough similar to yours and they're trusting God and they're believing God and man, it ignites a fire in you and you just feed off of each other. It's almost like Mary and Elizabeth, both of them pregnant with a vision at the same time. John in one womb and Jesus in the other and the babies are leaping and the women are just, wow. That's what happens. Men, come on, we got to just think a little bit. Let's, let's imagine, because the ladies understand this part better than we do, but you get a couple of brothers that are, I'm going to say it, pregnant with the same vision that get together, and all of a sudden something just leaps. Now, I mean it in a completely manly sense, but something just on the inside of you. You get cranked up and excited about it. Because, you know, the brother's got the same testimony. He may have come from a different empire. He may have been from Babylon, and you've been in Persia. But God caused His grace and favor to be poured out on you and on you too. And now you know each other. And you're in the same city with a vision. One to rebuild a temple and one to rebuild a wall. Now what am I saying to you this morning? Look at this. Because the gracious hand of the Lord, His God, was on him. Some of the people of Israel as well as the priests, Levites, singers, gatekeepers, temple servants traveled up to Jerusalem with him in the seventh year of the king of Artaxerxes' reign. Ezra arrived in August. Go ahead. He arranged to leave Babylon. Last, last phrase, read it with me. No, no, no. For the, read that loud. For the gracious hand of God was on him. How many of you need you some of that? Look at your neighbor and say, look at, let me tell you how to say it. This is Arkansas. Get you some of that. 
How many of you know right now that whatever you're trying to do, if you could say the gracious hand of God was on you, it would make all the difference in the world? Look at your neighbor and tell him right now, say, get you some of that. All right, let's look on. Gracious hand of God was on him. This is verse 10. I'm finished. Last verse. This was because Ezra had determined to what? Study and, say it out loud, obey the law of the Lord and to teach those decrees and regulations to the people of Israel. The word of the Lord is the most important thing in your life. Now, I'm going to read us into this story, which I always want to be careful when we're doing that, but this, this parallel will fly. I want to tell you who I am in this story, in this Ezra and Nehemiah partnership. Ezra restoring worship in a rebuilt temple, Nehemiah rebuilding the walls of the city and the culture. I want to tell you, I am your Ezra. Because God has called me, go back to the last verse, God has called me, everybody say it, study, obey, and teach. That's part of our ministry here is the, the, the preaching team, the lead team. We're to study, we're to obey, and we're to teach. And sometimes we carry visions in our hearts long before people even know it. You know, remember, Nehemiah walked the city before he talked to the leaders. Everybody say, walk before you talk. That'll preach right there. <laughs> study, obey, teach. Now, if I'm Ezra, then who are you? A couple of you got it. I said, if I'm Ezra, who are you? Oh, it's spreading in the room now. Tide's rising in the amen corner in the back. I said, if I'm Ezra, who are you? Oh, it's coming on. It's catching on now. I'm going to do it one more time. If I'm Ezra, then who are you? Okay, so when you hear Nehemiah for the next 10 Sundays, you need to see yourself empowered by the comfort of Yahweh, rising up in the face of things that aren't right, in the face of status quo, in the face of content, when you need to understand that there's a time to be discontent and say, no, I can't live in this mess we're in any longer. In my finances, in my family, in my job, in my relationship. I need to go home and spend some time and haul out. God, I commit to you, I'm going to haul out one trash load a day. Lord, I'm going to sit down and I'm going to look my wife in the face and I'm going to tell her, how special and how wonderful she is to me and forgive me for giving all that I have at my job all day long and then coming home and her getting the leftovers. Now let me just say, in case you brothers think I'm picking on you, ladies, you can do the same thing. You can give all out there is and then not have anything left for the love of your life. You want a better relationship? You want a cleaner house? You want better finances? Start to take steps to clean up the rubble. Begin in your own house. Build. Don't worry about everything else around you that's upset. Just build the wall in front of your own house. The word of the Lord is the most important thing to you. And my last point is they put it on the screen right here. Begin in where? In your heart. Lights are going down. Our heads are bowing before the Lord.